This is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Tom Chippis, the CEO of ArisX. First, we had a chance to talk with Tom about his background. He was the managing director and global head of quantitative prime brokerage at Citi and held the same position at Barclays. He has a great institutional background and has gotten really interested with the evolution and the revolution inspired with digital assets and blockchains. We had a really, really inspiring conversation about the different things that ArisX is doing over there. We talked about their July roadmap milestone with the CFTC. And so with everything that's happening with regulation and with approvals and with firms not getting approved, I think this is a great time to hear from a firm that is working with regulators in a positive manner. We talked about their investor base, which is incredible. And then we also talked about the process for listing a new coin or contract, his thoughts on stable coins and custody. It was a really, really all-encompassing conversation from the CEO of RSX, which has become a key piece of infrastructure within digital assets. So please remember, nothing on Baselayer is investment advice, so please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear a great conversation with the CEO of RSX, Thomas Chippis. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. So excited. I have Tom Chippis from ArisX with us today. This is going to be a really important conversation that we're having with Tom. And as people who know, what we'd like to do before we go into the dynamics of a project or what people are doing in terms of an investment, we'd like to get to know a little bit about them prior to going into further into that. So Tom was a managing director and global head of quantitative prime brokerage at City and held the same position at Barclays. And so would love, you know, as we have been talking to more people on Baselayer about this transition from traditional finance to digital assets, blockchains, and crypto, would love to hear a little bit more about your background, and then we're going to learn everything that we possibly can in these next few minutes about ArisX. So, Tom, take it away. Let us know what you uh, what what, you, what you've done before ArisX. Great, and thanks for having me. Really happy to be here, and always enjoy your show. Um, with respect to my previous experience, as he stated, uh, I had run quantitative prime brokerage uh, for City, and previous to that uh, at Barclays. A fantastic and very interesting area of financial markets. It is uh, providing automated trading services across multiple asset classes, equities, options, futures, in recent years, even things such as rates, all wrapped in uh, with a financing platform. And it really is a, a platform that required me to, to learn and think about how to optimize across both execution technology as well as financing efficiency uh, on a global basis for some of the most demanding uh, quantitative or systematic asset managers. And these aren't uh, what are typically referred to as high-frequency traders. These are investment managers that utilize uh, computer-driven models to determine their entry and exit points over sometimes very extended timeframes for their uh, portfolio investments. Um, So really a great great uh, you know opportunity for me with both those firms um, but you know prior to coming into the digital asset space 
Um, I had really been in electronic execution uh, on the capital market side and uh, actually started off my career as a CPA and quickly pivoted from that as I had more interest in financial markets. Um, after uh, actually, you know, one of the things I did uh, in terms of getting into uh, digital assets and blockchain. Um, I'd actually been at Citadel, uh, the hedge fund. And um, when I left Citadel, I had some time out of the market and I had started diving into blockchain and crypto. And I think like many people was initially thinking, you know, blockchain, yes, but crypto, you know, not so sure. And when I say many people, I'm referring to folks, you know, coming from a similar background, the capital markets background. Uh, but as I got into it, um, I really had a lot of interest and ended up uh, joining Axani, um, which is a distributed ledger technology firm and really uh, worked very hard there as a COO on a lot of things. But one of the things I'm I'm most proud of is the work we did around the implementation of distributed ledger technology uh, for derivatives, which I still firmly believe is a a great application of the technology. And I know there's always a lot of debate about, you know, is DLT just a database uh, or is there some inherent value to it? for capital markets workflows. I would say not for all capital markets workflows, but um, multi-party derivative processing, I think is a great application of that tech. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and while uh, it was at Exani, uh, they actually owned a firm called TradeBlock as well, which some in the crypto space may know, really a uh, market data terminal and index provider uh, for crypto data. So I did get some exposure to the sort of pure crypto side of things as well too. So when I left there, uh, because I really missed trading in markets and, and wanted to focus on trading in markets rather than enterprise software. I went to City, but just could not uh, really could not get crypto out of my head. Uh, you know, I built out a new systematic trading platform. While I was there for Asia, uh, but really could not stop thinking about crypto. So uh, I decided to to leave City when the ASX opportunity arose, and uh, you know. I think I treated them well. They treated me well. And uh, uh, here I am at AirSex. The proverbial blockchain, not Bitcoin conversation is something that I've had many a times. And you're obviously alluding to that. You know, there are many people who, you know, family offices and other institutional investors who first come into this space and say, well, I see the technology. I see blockchain. And then they say, well, I don't really like this whole Bitcoin and kind of cryptocurrency thing because they hear about malfeasance, they hear about manipulation, they don't really understand the reasons behind it. And that, you know, I think I've kind of identified that. We don't have to go into this, but for, you know, conversations down the road when I get to meet you in person too, I think a lot of it comes down to the incentive models of a lot of these different things with Bitcoin and how proof of stake models go. It all comes down to not understanding how these networks are really operating and incentivized. And I think that is one of the key elements that a lot of people get kind of caught up on. So, Again, for another conversation when we see each other, we'll have uh, we'll have some coffee and talk about it. But let's talk about Arisex. Um, Arisex has operated a designated contract market for seven years. You are building Arisex is building on the expertise and applying it to digital assets. So apparently, in July, uh, there was a roadmap milestone with the CFTC. What designated contract market, or what we call DCM, derivatives clearing organization, DCO licenses, are, and where are you, you know, effectively launching in the future? So, talk to us about this July milestone. Um, what happened for RISX in July, and talk to us about some of these 
designations, these DCMs, these DCOs, a lot of people might not necessarily be too familiar with them while they're reviewing the digital asset marketplace. Yeah, happy to. And you're right. There, there are all sorts of terms and acronyms that uh, really don't help to enlighten someone who's actually interested. It sort of forces you to do a bunch of additional homework. So a DCM or designated contract market license is the is the license granted by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, by the CFTC, to allow an entity to operate a futures exchange. So well-known futures exchanges, say like CME, have a DCM license. It's what allows you to operate the exchange. And the exchange, of course, is where buyers and sellers meet and their orders are are matched and uh, the trades are, are, are consummated. That DCM is necessary in order to facilitate the exchange. The other side of trading, of course, is post-trade is the clearing of those trades, the uh, assurance and, and swapping of the of the cash for uh, the collateral, the collateral for the cash. And that all happens um, within a derivatives clearing organization or DCO under the Commodities and Exchange Act. So in the US, if you want to operate a futures exchange with, with air quotes around it, you're really saying, well, I need an exchange and I need to clear them somewhere. So I need also a clearinghouse. And the exchange has a DCM. The clearinghouse has a DCO. Um, you mentioned in the opening of this question, Eris has a history of uh, operating a DCM. Uh, prior to my arrival and, and for roughly seven years, Eris Futures, a uh, predecessor company, operated a futures exchange. And it was for interest rate swap futures. And those futures traded on Eris Futures, the DCM, but they cleared over at CME, the DCO. So over time, and without spending a lot of time on that history, uh, the futures contracts were moved over and now actually are traded and cleared on the CME, DCM, DCO. We took that DCM license of Eris Futures and have retasked that into Eris X. And we're using that license uh, to operate our futures exchange when we launched later this year. And we spent about 18 months in the process uh, of getting a DCO, the clearinghouse license. Um, so it, it's it's a bit of a long process, um, but what occurred back in July uh, was that we had gone through the application, um, spent a lot of time with the staff and, and commission uh, to fulfill their questions, address their concerns, demonstrate how and and when and, and why we'd be doing the things we'd be doing, and then we were given our DCO. And that's a publicly available document to anybody who cares to, to search the CFTC website. Um, we also were asked to fulfill some conditions. So think of it as we were given the DCO license, and there was a punch list on top of it that said, hey, you have your license, but before you start using this license, you need to go and address the following you know, things. Let's just for our number of purposes say 10 things. And uh, what we've been doing since July is addressing those uh, conditions. And that just requires everything from demonstrations of technology to uh, providing more detail on our policies and procedures um, and spending some more time with uh, the CFTC staff uh, to, to make sure they're thoroughly and uh, 
happily uh, contented on on our responses to all those things. So I'll, I'll pause now, but it's really the two licenses you need to operate a futures exchange in Clearinghouse. And it's not the sort of thing where you apply online and you hear back in 24 hours. You know, I think it's interesting that there was a podcast from A16Z. Uh, I think it was in late August. I would recommend everyone to check, uh, take a look at it. It's with Katie Hahn and Mark Andreessen. And Mark is talking about the early days of the internet. And he's talking about, I think it's around 1993, where many of us don't remember that it was actually illegal to do retail and commerce on the internet. And there was necessary education and consequentially regulation that was put in place that allowed that to actually happen. And so it was the education of those in the positions of the CFTC and the regulators and the SEC. In your experience thus far at RISX, I'm just curious, how has that been? Are they, are they, really kind of are they is it soaking in i know that i'm I'm, i know that they're getting a lot of information you know i think people have this this thought that the regulators just want to crack down on this and that they want to ban it i think it's the opposite from what i've heard and from the experiences out there they seem to really want to learn about this is that what you would say absolutely i would and i think there's a lot of misinterpretation of the information being provided by the by the various regulators. We're obviously focused on the CFTC, uh, not only in response to, to, to your question here, but more broadly for our futures market. And then, of course, the different state regulators for our spot market, which we launched back in April. But take, for example, uh, the response I just gave you. We received our DCO license in July. There were some conditions attached to it. If you're not familiar with this process, you may say, oh my gosh, look, at they're putting conditions on this. They don't want people to do this. When actually conditions on the issuance of a license is a normal thing. If you look at uh, a number of entities that have received licenses of late, you'll go look at the publicly available documents. You'll see that conditions are always a part of the process. It's a way that the commission says, hey, we're satisfied. You're good to go. We just want to make sure you're going to do all the stuff you said you're going to do. So I think there can be misinterpretation of things that are otherwise benign in normal operating procedures. Um, but I think uh, on a more sort of uh, 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 subjective basis, there's a real desire to learn. And I also think there's an underestimation of how much the regulators actually know. Um, there's a depth of, of knowledge uh, in the folks we've been speaking to at the CFTC about digital assets and cryptocurrencies. Um, they've done a lot of homework and the CFTC, especially via the lab CFTC and via the Technology Advisory Committee, is actually dedicated quite a bit of time to, to crypto. I, I was just down in Washington last week in um, working with uh, Professor Brummer out of Georgetown. We gave a presentation to the CFTC commissioners. This was in a public forum uh, about custody, for example. So there's a desire to learn and also educate uh, folks in the public domain about these issues. I think what I find interesting is someone who does come more from the traditional capital market side, albeit I've, I've always been sort of at the sort of change agent end of, of the spectrum in, in capital markets, there's a lack of appreciation on the part of, of maybe more crypto-centric or folks that haven't come from traditional markets for the fact that the regulators have a job to do. And just because we have new enterprising technology that is interesting, it can do things quickly that couldn't be done quickly before or what have you, um, I, I think you have to appreciate that they have a job to do as well too. And 
the fact that perhaps other entities can do things overnight in lightly regulated jurisdictions elsewhere doesn't necessarily mean that's okay. Conversely, it doesn't mean it should take forever in the U.S. as well, too. But there has to be a greater appreciation for the balance and that there's actually you know, good intent on the part of the regulators to, to fulfill their, their mission. I agree. And it's, you know, we had this conversation with Sunaya from TD Ameritrade last week. It's everyone is in a rush because the narrative of the institutions are coming has been the marching kind of uh, the narrative over the last year or two. And everyone's been hotly waiting for that. Everyone's been waiting for the ETF to come into place. And a lot of these things, as you rightly allude to, these things take time. There are people that have jobs that are trying to protect investors' interests and trying to stave off systemic risk and lots of things out there. And so you hit it on the head there about it. You know, we need to give these things time. We need to continue to educate. We need to have open minds about these things. But moving on to more about ERISAX, can you talk a little bit more about your investors you know, there's a wide range of investors, including exchanges, intermediaries, proprietary trading groups, market makers, digital assets. Talk to us a little bit about the process of, you know, talking to other investors about the business and getting them more educated and excited about digital assets. Sure. I mean, we're, we're really fortunate uh, at Arisex to have uh, a, not only a large number of investors, but really marquee investors from from different facets of, of industry. Um, we have exchanges like NASDAQ and SIBO. Uh, we have uh, retail intermediaries like TD Ameritrade and Fidelity and TradeStation and uh, Monex out of Japan, who's actually the parent company at TradeStation. Um, we have a whole variety of market makers and not not just purely folks that are market makers in the crypto space, but successful market makers globally across asset classes. So we have people like uh, DRW and Susquehanna and Virtu and XR Trading and a whole bunch of others. There's a lot in that category, so I'm not excluding anybody just for brevity, naming a few. Um, we also have what I'll call you know more digital-oriented firms. Um, so we have people like uh, Consensus, and a matter of fact, Joe Lubin's on, on our board. Uh, we have DCG, uh, we have Pantera, um, we have Bitmain, uh, which is obviously you know the, the miner, and we have um, New York Digital Investment Group, which is a provider of uh, custody and execution and investment services in the space. So we have a whole you know list of names that are just really focused on the the digital space. Um, and then we have uh, a couple of VC firms in PE. We have uh, Valor Equity Partners, um, who is active in the space, also an investor in things like BitGo. Um, and we have people like uh, like Castle Island and Dragonfly Capital and folks that are really focused in the crypto space. So I feel real fortunate as the CEO of RSX that if I have a question or I want to bounce an idea off of someone, I have a great Rolodex. And whether it's I want to talk to people that are steeped in traditional capital markets exchange operations. If I want to talk to market makers, if I want to talk to retail intermediaries or even institutional intermediaries, I failed to mention uh, EDNF Man, for example, who is an FCM and, and services institutions. Um, there's always someone I could call if I want to talk about what's happening in the pure crypto space. You know, the ability to pick up the phone and and talk to Pantera or Consensus or or DCG is fantastic. And again, I'm not excluding anybody. It's a long list of names, but I think we've put together a really great group 
that recognizes that growth in this industry is going to take a little bit of time and they want it done right. And right is defined in many ways, you know, institutional class technology and operations, risk management, proper licensing, you know, proper relationships with the regulators, all these sorts of things. Everyone's invested in, you know, the long-term good. They want to see an exchange that operates with transparency, um, known and defined rules, applies surveillance, treats participants consistently with no side arrangements or undisclosed fee arrangements. Everything should be out there on equal access terms. And, And what isn't really always appreciated in the crypto space, I find, they like the idea that the exchange and clearinghouse are related but separate functions. Um, and that's something that's very common common in traditional capital markets, but not so much so in, in crypto. And it's a way to help mitigate a lot of the risk for market participants. And lastly, you know, no conflicts. They don't want us to be a company that also runs a trading affiliate to trade for ourselves. You know, we we don't do that. We only operate the exchange and the clearinghouse. Our rate card is online. Those terms are available to everyone, not just investors. So it's a great group. Everyone's mission focused. We get a lot of fantastic support. Uh, and as I said, I just feel super, super fortunate. I can tap, um, you know, a real wide variety of experienced professionals. Yeah, obviously, I mean, a deep bench is really important. And it's obviously from what you can, you've listed a, a cornucopia and a smorgasbord of, of different ones out there that have different perspectives. And so talking more about kind of diversification, what is the process to list a new coin or contract on RSX as we're, you know, getting more mature into the ecosystem with Bitcoin now being around for 10 years and Ethereum being around for about five years and, you know, some of these projects that are moving from testnet to mainnet and launching live platforms that have staking tokens and all these other things that are happening in real time. What is the process to list a new coin or contract on RSX? Yeah. I mean, at first I think it's important to understand what, what sort of digital assets are we focused on? And we're definitely focused in the commodity space. You know, we want to be able to offer both the spot as well as the futures in the in the tokens that that are listed on our market. So, you know, we're not trying to operate an altcoin platform. We're not trying to operate, you know, a, a place for people to do whatever the current incarnation of ICO meets IEO and whatever comes next. That's not what we're trying to do. We are far more focused on and and, and laser beam focused, I should say, on commodities. So that narrows the field a little bit for us. Um, and you know, for insight into our thinking about what sort of things could be listed, we provided a lengthy response to the CFTC's request for information regarding Ethereum. Uh, and we went through a response positing why Ethereum is a commodity and why uh, Ethereum should be treated as a commodity and why, because it's a commodity, um, there should be futures available on it. And we drew parallels to everything from the gold market to jet fuel in the airline industry and others such that, hey, it's a commodity. And if businesses operate in this commodity, they should be able to access the derivative markets in order to hedge their risk and manage the cost of doing business. So, you know, that's just an illustration of, of our thinking there. Uh, there are, of course, no lack of, of coins or tokens to look at, but not, all, not a lot of them actually fall into that commodity bucket. So from our perspective, one, once we sort of looked at it through that commodities lens, 
Um, we want to make sure we can list the spot in the future. Um, and then we look at whether or not there's demand. You know, how much demand is there in the market? There are certainly plenty of uh, digital assets out there that come out with a bang and then you know, they sit in a handful of wallet addresses with very little turnover and their chain is secured by, you know, a minimal amount of infrastructure. So we look at what the demand is. Is there sufficient liquidity? Is the chain secure? And if we get through all those things and they look good, you know, we do have to go through um, some of our you know, risk assessments internally and make sure that uh, our assertions on those attributes are, are, are valid. Um, and then we want to be able to support it. You know, is this something that we feel we can custody safely within our clearinghouse? Is this something that we can uh, bring appropriate monitoring to bear on for everything from, you know, transactions on chain to wallet movements and things of that nature? So is it a commodity? Is there demand? Um, is it something that is secured, widely distributed? Uh, and then, you know, is it something that we can actually appropriately integrate so that we can meet our standards of, of, of security and performance? And in terms of diversification, so in, in moving away from these more commodity-based ones to stable coins, everyone has been thinking and focusing on stable coins for the last year or two. We've seen some that have unfortunately failed. We've seen others that have still been in existence. We've seen projects like Libra uh, that have tried to come to market. We have seen lots of different kind of iterations around stable coins, and we've seen that there might be a real need for stable coins in this market, especially as it regards to a liquidity provider, if you will, from moving from different assets. So what is your opinion on stablecoins today? Yeah, I completely agree with you that there's a lot happening in the space and a lot out there. I guess the first thing I think about when I think about a stablecoin is what need is it trying to, to fill? What problem is it solving? And the most common one is that you know the fiat rails that support movement of fiat today are not aligned with the 24 by 7 nature of crypto. Those two workflows don't mesh because you have you know, cutoff times and various processing windows, especially, of course, for the dollar that don't make that work. So what's what's sprung up around that? Well, you know, your, your two potential solutions are everybody open a bank account at the same bank. And that is an oversimplification of what Silvergate and Signature do. The other option is get a stablecoin. So something that represents a dollar and then utilizing public blockchain technology, you know, can we move that value, that tokenized dollar back and forth whenever we want? And that's certainly what the majority of stable coins out there today are trying to do. Um, I say stable coins also in some regions support exposure to a, a US dollar based value or equivalent value for participants that may not have direct access to US dollars. And th those are more um, intriguing applications of it. But I think without a doubt, we see that. Um, I, I doubt everyone who holds a tether is someone that could perhaps open a US dollar bank account. And I have, I have no evidence to indicate this, but I think it's a relatively safe assumption. So that's solving perhaps a combination of the timing problem and the, hey, how do I represent $1 of value on the blockchain? Um, there's also different innovations out there, whether it's the PAX Gold stablecoin or, as we saw last week with USDC and the the, the rewards uh, that have been uh, attached for the retail customers. I think those are all very interesting, but there's still 
some ambiguity on some of these stable coins as to whether or not uh, there is security. And sometimes that ambiguity derives from where the, uh, the, the coin is offered. So, you know, it's an interesting space. We are very, you know, mission focused on, on providing services and solving problems. If a stable coin solves some of these problems I've enumerated and, and can do that in a regulatory compliant way, then, you know, then we're very interested. I would say that there's only a handful of things that do that today. And the stable coin market candidly is Tether and then a bunch of other stuff. If you look at the data, it's just so overwhelmingly in one that there's still a lot of churn and we're a long way away from there being a, a stable coin, you know, breakout winner for, for the short term at least. And so moving to another piece of infrastructure that's key is custody. I, you know, I wanted to get your opinion on custody solutions out there, whether, you know, hot and cold storage, you know, is, is, you know, kind of used and kind of getting the state of the state of a risk access in regards to custody, if you can opine on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think custody is uh, something that is, going to evolve and change as many other things have in the crypto markets. I'm referencing the public presentation that uh, that Professor Brumman and I did uh, last week at the Technology Advisory Committee in Washington. Um, what I'd say is that you know it's common today uh, for people to use a blend of hot and cold and, and, and obviously always people reference the term warm as well, wallets. And uh, you know those are relatively standard solutions. They're different providers of hot and cold storage solutions. And then they've wrapped uh, different levels of convenience features around them, whether you know, there's a lot of online availability with APIs and things of that nature, or, or maybe it's more cold oriented with manual processes or some combination thereof. So I think you, those sorts of solutions that wrap in you know, things like wallet whitelisting and other things to protect the safety of, of crypto and fiat are all very important. And these are all the sorts of things that we've thought about and implemented our own take on here at RSX to protect the fiat and crypto of the members of our clearinghouse. Um, but what I referenced in Washington was that, you know, there's new technologies emerging and Certainly an area I've been doing a lot of homework on is, is on the uh, multi-part computing, the MPC solutions. I think as the technology evolves, the nature of what it means to be secure and the cost of that security and the speed of transactions uh, as a trade-off versus security is all going to to either reduce in terms of cost and narrow in terms of security versus speed trade-off. So you know, there's going to be an evolution here over the next few years. And what I think are looked at as today as standard solutions may look very, very different a few years on from now. Um, and that's not even diving into, and I don't know if you want to get into today, You know, should custody be something provided by a third party? How does it compare to self-custody and, and the impact of those choices? You know, on market liquidity and you know how that compares to central limit order books such as ours versus, say, the DeFi movement. That's that's probably a whole other podcast right there. There is, yeah, that is a whole different can of worms to open up, and uh, something that I've been thinking a lot about lately too. But to keep us on task, let's move to price discovery. And so this has been something that I've talked a lot about on the show recently. Is that a lot of institutional investors, family offices, other endowments, high net worths have always asked, well, you know, what is the price of Bitcoin? And then, you know, I can say as of right now, as of this recording, I'm seeing a spot of 
8499 and so how does that derived and where does that come from and you know how do i know that that is actually the price and so there's all of these different exchanges out there and you know these different exchanges might be pricing bitcoin differently and so you recently published an article about the benefits to price discovery on a displayed central limit order book a clob would love to hear more about that yeah central limit order book is a very commonly understood and implemented structure uh, across a variety of asset classes, equities, options, futures, and more and more in the fixed income world as that becomes more electronic. So the idea of a central limit order book is not necessarily unique innovation, but the assertion that, that we made is when the question of where are the institutions, where are all the market participants comes up, it's great to talk about all the other potential impediments. You know, we just talked about custody. Some people have some decisions to make there. And we've talked about regulatory issues and other entities are looking for clarity there. But one of the more overlooked aspects of this is, well, is the market structure conducive? And you know, the, what you hear about over the last, say, 12 months or so, if I wind the clock back to end of summer last year, you know, oh, Block trading desk. That's how we're going to get liquidity. Everyone set up a block desk, and everybody was setting up a block, setting up a block desk. And then it was, oh, OTC liquidity. Let's stream liquidity from OTC providers. That's going to solve our problem. And what we've had is a lot of the existing market participants optimizing for the available liquidity today in institutional size, and also in an attempt to not have their trades produce market moving information. But if you're trying to expand the reach of this market, we have to ask ourselves, well, what is the optimal structure to do that? Central limit order books provide transparency. Central limit order books, central limit order books provide uh, a venue whereby buyers and sellers are matched based upon typically price time priority. And that is perceived as more fair to a wider array of participants. Um, but it also seems to be a market structure that doesn't find itself uh, producing bad outcomes. And in that uh, medium post that we put up, we referenced a whole slew of markets that were run by single counterparts or OTC groups that um, that got themselves into trouble across a variety of asset classes because the OTC liquidity provider is essentially making a unique market for each participant rather than one displayed order book where the bids and offers can be hit and lifted by any market participant. So right. we just think that there's a, a debate here that hasn't been had. And it's far easier to say, where are the institutions? I don't know. When are they going to get here? I don't know. We should ask why they're not here yet. And it can't be the same old tripes of custody and regulation. We do think there's a debate to be had about the efficacy and appropriateness of the market structures in place today. It doesn't Absolutely. mean one's right, one's wrong, but there's got to be a balance and, and maybe a greater emphasis on, on other types in order to help you know, get more people uh, the ability to trade these, these assets. And I think that you're hitting it on the head again is that there are lessons learned from traditional finance to digital assets. You know, there have been mistakes made and there are lessons to be learned from those mistakes. And, you know, case in point, I have been talking recently about uh, DeFi and about some of the systemic risk that is starting to, in my opinion, creep up. 
with the collateralization and with some of the synthetics that are being created. Very exciting space, something I'm very positive on. But if you are someone who spent time in the market in 2006 and 2007, 2008, you're very concerned about containing risk. And if you start obviously spreading that risk and creating more facets for that risk to obviously hit other parts of the market, then you have a problem. So lots of lessons to be learned from traditional finance. And I love that you guys are thinking about that too. So real quick, you know, there are two things I want to hit on before we end. Um, a little bit more, you talked about DCOs in terms of what they are. Um, and so versus other options out there uh, to access digital assets, you know, what is really, if you were to talk to an institutional investor or family office right now, you know, what is, you know, the real, you know, benefit of using a DCO in future versus some of these other options that are available to access Bitcoin, Ethereum, and some others? Sure. I mean, I probably would talk to them in terms of accessing spot or derivatives and the DCO is just, you know, an entity and a mechanism for, for clearing those futures trades. And we use the same technology and procedures for, for clearing our, our spot trades as well, too, with a, you know, a couple nuances for spot versus the derivative. But I guess what I'd say is, you know, in the U.S., there's only a, a handful of operators of derivative markets for uh, digital assets. And the majority of them actually operate uh, what are called swap execution uh, facilities. And swap execution facilities are a little bit different. Um, we actually wrote a little paper about this several months back and tried to uh, um, elaborate a bit on the differences. You know, To participate in a swap execution facility, you need to be a qualified counterparty. Uh, and there are much uh, higher demands on the size of your assets in order for you to participate in the trade sizes and what have you. So those can be good uh, facilities for certain types of counterparts. But if you're not one of these qualified counterparties or you are one and you want to seek the deepest pools of liquidity, I think you'd find a market that encourages retail and institutional producers and hedgers, a true commodities market a bit more palatable uh, for price discovery and depth of liquidity simply because it looks like something that we already know works today, which is a traditional commodities market. And that's how we keep coming back to the story of what we're trying to build here at RSX. You know, these are commodities. A traditional commodities market has producers, hedgers, and speculators, and they all come together to generate prices and liquidity. They all serve a very important role in the ecosystem of markets. So what I would say, you know, in closing on this topic is, look, there's different ways you can trade derivatives, but if you want to trade with, you know, fully disclosed pricing, and you want to trade with the widest variety of counterparts so that you're not getting, you know, inferior pricing, and you want assuredness of clearing under a you know federally regulated clearinghouse, then trading on a regulated futures exchange and clearinghouse like RSX, we think is a very positive choice. That is a exceptional answer. <laughs> um, last thing I want to touch on is that I noticed on the site, transactions are monitored on top of robust blockchain interfaces. What is that, if you can break that down, discuss what that means in more depth and give some color as to what chains are being used. Is it on public or private chains or hybrid chains? What does you know, this monitoring on top of robust blockchain interfaces mean? 
Yeah, it's it's tough to jam everything into your marketing message sometimes. Um, I think we, I think we do a good job, uh, but sometimes maybe it's not always yeah. as crystal clear. Well, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll pass it all on to our marketing team. Um, but here's what we mean. So on our market, as we talked about tokens, right, we only are listing publicly available digital assets today. So which change, public or private, is pretty straightforward. It's public. It's Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, and Ethereum. So those are the chains that we are looking at and observing um, as we look at the movement of uh, coin in and out of our clearinghouse um, and for our surveillance of wallet movements and things of that nature. So we're looking at publicly available data. Uh, we use a variety of tools to address analysis of blockchain data. So I mentioned wallet movements as we fulfill our AML KYC responsibilities. And we are FinCEN registered. We have obligations there that we have to fulfill. Um, we look at wallet movements. Uh, we look at transactions. Uh, and we also use tools to monitor you know, different types of market data because not only are we interested in hey, where is this coin coming from? Where is this coin going to? But we're also looking at health of the blockchains. We're looking at you know mining and hash rate data and things of that nature as well, too. Um, and then we're looking at those public blockchains also to make sure we have uh, you know, certainty around transaction finality, which you know, in theory, you know, a block reorg could happen in theory at any point in the future. But as we've done the analysis as many others have as well too it becomes economically infeasible for that to happen but we're always monitoring the blockchain for that sort of finality as well and it has to meet you know our standards for finality depending upon which chain we're talking about so all public looking at data as, as coins go in and out of the clearinghouse uh, performing our aml and kyc obligations and then looking at the health of those networks to ensure there isn't some pending issue coming up with changes in you know mining capacity or, or distribution of it thereof. those are really the things that we're referring to and we actually uh, then have a whole different set of surveillance utilities that look at our central limit order book to ensure the integrity of those transactions we did a, a joint paper on that um, with our surveillance partner aventus who provides us some of the technology we use uh, to monitor our central limit order book to make sure that people aren't, uh, you know, engaging in, in in activities that are detrimental to our participants. Fantastic. One of the things that we'd like to do before we let our guests go is you have given us a cadre of information about RISX, and it's a lot to chew on. I know people are going to learn a lot from this, but getting to know you a little bit better, we like to kind of understand what motivates people, what gets into their brain, if you will. Um, and two things that we typically like to focus in on are what have you been reading lately? If there's anything that you read kind of resonates whether it's a book, whether it's an article, something that you've read recently that just really resonated with you. that um, could be crypto or non-crypto related, of course. And then any music that you listen to, whether you're traveling, whether you're working out, anything that kind of, you know, is in between your ears that just really gives you a sense of peace or gives you motivation, things of that nature. You know, what have you been reading and what kind of music do you listen to? Well, when I'm not listening to Bass Layer, of course, you mean. Um, but uh, oh, of, course, of course, thank you. No, no lack of podcasts uh, to take your time. And Bass Layer, I only do on one X. I just want to tell you that. But uh, I appreciate it. <laughs> as far as you know, crypto reading, I wouldn't even know where to start. But maybe apropos of, of your comment that 
you're observing that at ArisX, we look at historical things uh, in capital markets and think about how they might apply. You know, one of the books I keep going back to is uh, by Bill Bryson. It's called The Short History of Nearly Everything. And he goes through and breaks down all these discoveries that we don't even think about. You know, how did how did Newton determine how much the Earth weighed when Newton was alive? You know, there was no none of the modern tools for observance. Or where did calculus come from specifically? And all sorts of things of this nature, discoveries that we take for granted. I, I I've read the book. I don't even know how many times now, but I keep rereading it because it reminds me that for all the things that are new and exciting, if we don't just take a few moments and look back and understand where discoveries come from, it's very difficult for us to to learn. And I think that it motivates me to to not look to the past for inspiration, but to look to the past for guidance and 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 a reminder to be thoughtful as we're thinking about what we build. Um, so that's something that's not crypto specific, but certainly I find motivating. And it, it's a great, it's a great book, by the way, as well. Um, as far as music goes, I'm probably really heavily stuck in a 90s alt phase right now. Um, and that is a lot of grunge and maybe a little rage against the machine when I need to burn off uh, a few extra calories. Uh, but that's kind of where I'm stuck in the music front right now is uh, a heavy 90s alt phase. I love that. That is very unexpected. And I, you know, this is why I asked this question because you never know what you're going to get from people. And I think that's amazing. Um, really love the 90s phase. And I did have my own grunge phase where I was wearing flannels every single day. And my mother didn't understand why, you know, Kurt Cobain was my, was my God. Um, but I love that. And so finally, what we like to do with guests on the show, as you know, is give them an opportunity to let people find more about you and find out more about the project. So if you'd like, you know, tell people where they can find more about RISX and get in touch and get in contact with you guys. Absolutely. So easiest way to do that is ERISX, E-R-I-S-X.com. Uh, and I'd also recommend taking a look from there. You can find uh, ErisX Insights, which is our channel on Medium, which has all the papers I referred to. Those are probably the two best starting places. Um, there's a contact link out there as well you can hit, and uh, we're pretty pretty responsive in those regards. So that's probably uh, the best place to go to find us. Amazing. So this was Tom Chippis, the CEO of RSX. This was a really encompassing conversation. We've learned a lot about RSX, and it is an important piece of infant institutional infrastructure within the digital asset space. Tom, we look forward to catching up with you again in a few months to see how things are going, and thank you for being on the show. Take care. Thank you. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash baselayer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Baselayer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space in the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.